0: Stephanie Sugars, welcome to the new school.
1: Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me come today. I first met you in 1992 when I came to a cancer help program with metastatic breast cancer. I returned again in 2009 and in 2012, both times long past my expiration date, and um, I very much have found that the Commonweal Cancer Help Program has been An integral part of my life in cancer land has been a steady reference point to me and a steady beacon through the confusion that can come with having cancer and that what I learned on retreat and before that from your book, Choices in Healing, I've carried with me through my own experience but also through my conversations with literally thousands of other cancer patients in a way that... I feel that I've mm, continued the commonweal impulse to reach out and to support other people who are navigating in this crazy cancer land. And I'm so grateful to be here, and I feel so thankful. Thank you, Stephanie.
0: I'd like to ask you to start by reading a poem by William Stafford that is a favorite of yours. I wondered if you'd read this to us.
1: There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen... People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. It's a William Stafford poem called The Way It Is.
0: You know, um, one of the things we do sometimes in the Cancer Help Program when a poem really touches us is to read it twice. Would you read it one more time?
1: The Way It Is, William Stafford There's a thread you follow It goes among things that change But it doesn't change People wonder about what you are pursuing You have to explain about the thread But it is hard for others to see While you hold it, you can't get lost Tragedies happen People get hurt or die And you suffer and get old Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread.
0: What is that thread in your life?
1: Mm. I might say it's more of a braid than a thread. And so the strong threads for me are healing, and um, in multiple forms, in multiple ways, um, curiosity and interest in the world, and um, a continued sense of the transcendent or life beyond the obvious material basics that we seem to live in.
0: You've lived with illness for a long time. Tell us that story.
1: Um, yeah. Um, well, I was born in 1956 in San Francisco. And in early 1957, I had stopped thriving. And it was discovered that I had a large polyp blocking my GI tract. And so I had my first surgery then and um, recovered fairly well, dealt with ongoing issues of pain and anemia um, that got much worse in my teenage years. And at the age of 16, I was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder called Putes-Jäger syndrome. Um, It's a GI tract polyposis um, and a greatly increased risk risk of cancer in many organs. Um, so at 16 I had another surgery which resolved some of the problems that I was having, some of the pain and the, um, the bleeding issues. And subsequent to that i had many encounters with the medical world for the GI tract polyposis Plus, in early 1991, I was diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer that quickly metastasized um, to the chest wall. And I've been living with metastatic breast cancer for over 21 years now. So I think that's a pretty long time in the illness world.
0: And for those who don't know... Living with metastatic breast cancer for over 20 years is not a common event.
1: No. um, The average life expectancy at that time was two years, and I think it's gone up maybe a few months, but not a lot more than that.
0: Um, To what do you attribute that remarkable extended survival with metastatic breast cancer?
1: Um, personally or... Personally. Personally. Um, I've been very fortunate in many ways. I've had many healing adventures and many healing healers and connections with healers in my life and had the capacity, this curiosity that I mentioned, this interest in the world to take what people offer and integrate it, whether it's um, mind-body techniques or um, ways of working with pain, ways of um, being open to something other than what's obvious. Um, I think I've had a really untraditional medical course. I haven't thrown everything at it um, the way a lot of my peers have done. So I've tried, I've used like a different benchmark, I guess you'd say, for what's acceptable for me to do and not, and the risks that I'm willing to take. I take what look really like really foolhardy risks from one perspective, but are really cautious from another perspective. And I think the big thing that I've been attributing my survival probably for the last five years. um, This is gonna sound really kind of kooky, but it's the way it reads for me, and that is the spiritual world wants me here. And so it's my job to take care of my vessel and to pay attention and to try to serve and to try to be attentive to what the spiritual world wants and I get back the juice that I need to do that and the continued survival. But I think it's not just survival in the grossest sense, uh, you know, just a prolongation of physical life. I think there's also a life force that's granted to me that doesn't seem to be based on biology.
0: Say more about how you experience that relationship to the spiritual life force.
1: I pray a lot, Um, and the way my prayers sound from the inside for me is, um, show me the way Bring me the people I need to meet. Bring me to offer what I can offer. Um, just I have I attempt to have a certain openness and a certain willingness to show up for life as it unfolds inside me and around me. And I feel like. I've been granted capacities to do that that are, just as there are no direct proportion to my physiological, mm, there's like no physiological reason that I should be here. I've, I've also been able to access spiritual gifts that haven't come I say this—that that come from some unknown place and source. That's beyond typical communication or description. You, your, like, you're, you're brows furrowing a little. Like, no. Okay.
0: Uh, right with you.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: When we decided that we'd have this conversation. You suggested that we talk about um, what you have to offer at this point in your life, because you've you've said uh, in Cancer Help Program alumni days uh, and elsewhere that um, that you sense that death is coming closer, right? um, And you've also said that you're not afraid of death, that you're actively curious about. So, as we begin to explore together what it is that you have to offer at this point, where would you start?
1: I guess I could start with a little story on why I wanted to come and talk with you. And I could go back to my childhood a little bit with this. And as a child, I was lonely in my family and I was lonely in my neighborhood and in my school in my town. And I didn't really find people who were like me who cared about the things that I cared about, who were passionate about the things I was passionate about. But we had a library and In that library, I found friends, and I found people who had a lot of the same questions and concerns that I had. And it assuaged that loneliness for me. And I felt a little bit like Gretel and Hansel working their way back through the forest with the white stones, and that people had put down those stones in their books— They had laid a path for me to come or go, to to return home. And I'm talking like the metaphorical home, the place of belonging. And so what I've done during this period... I'm going to be dying soon, and it's 5, 10, 15, 20 years later and I haven't died that soon, is looking for people who are putting out the markers. Um, And there's not a lot of people who are facing the end of their lives who have put put out those markers so much. So I just had a book out of the library, a wonderful book, collection about um, end-of-life topics. It was all written by survivors. And a couple of them admitted they were mortal... But for the most part, death was an aberration in their worlds. It was something that so upset their worlds that then they had to ponder it in writing and to try, as a collection of short stories, um, creative nonfiction, first person. It, it, it was like... I was looking for people who would tell me how it was for them at the end of their life and finding not that kind of nutrition there. I was finding the kind of nutrition for how do you deal when you're a survivor, when your mom's died or your dad's died or um, someone else significant to you. And I feel like it's underexplored in our culture and it's underrepresented. And that might be something that I have to offer because I've been not only contemplating my own death, but showing up for many people at the end of their lives.
0: Anthroposophical medicine has been important to you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Say a word about what, what anthroposophical medicine is. Let's just start there.
1: The way I came to it and the way a lot of people with cancer come to it is because they've heard of Iskador or uh, mistletoe-based anti-cancer medications that are usually given by injection or also by infusion, IV. And um, that is just the grossest physical level. It's an amazing medicine. It, has, it works on multiple levels, physiological, but far beyond um, the physical body. That's the soul, the spirit, um, the etheric body. Anthroposophic medicine is based on the anthroposophic teachings or indications of Rudolf Steiner, the man who um, also gave indications for Waldorf education, biodynamic farming, Camp Hill communities for... um, Developmentally disabled, they're um, like um, intergenerational communities, and it comes out of a conception of the human being that is holistic and inclusive. And so, anthroposophic medicine is not just the physical medicine of the but actually um, an understanding of what a human is and how how to how we might hold that one human being to another human being.
0: Steiner was a most extraordinary man. I uh, visited uh, a series of anthroposophical clinics in Europe when I was first exploring integrative cancer therapies and before we started the Cancer Health Program 26 years ago, so this must have been 30 years ago. And I visited... Uh, the Lucas Clinic in alzheimers Switzerland, which uh, was then headed by Dr. Rita Leroy, who was the wife of the founder of the clinic, and I visited several others. And it's quite hard for people to imagine. There, the In Europe, in Germany, and in um, Uh, Scandinavian countries and Switzerland and so forth. Anthroposophical medicine is very well regarded. It has its own medical school, and particularly people facing life-threatening illnesses will often go to anthroposophical hospitals, which offer a combination of excellent medical conventional care, but also this combination of... um, herbal medicines like Iskador and um, forms of music and color therapy. And, and, and the hospitals themselves, the Lucas Clinic, you know, it used anthroposophical architecture, so there was scarcely a right angle in the whole place, and the patients dressed in their street clothes, and they would help each other in their rooms, and people would come down to meals, and there would be real silverware and white tablecloths, and there would be chamber music playing in the halls. And, and, and the highest... Uh, Dr. Leroy said to me uh, that the highest purpose of the anthroposophical physician was to assist the person on their spiritual journey. And I remember so clearly she said to me, there's a woman here who has this terrible open wound from her cancer. And, you know, physically it's just terrible. But she knows that there is a level at which she is not touched by this at all, you know. So just imagine what it's like to live in a culture where this is not an aberration, and where this vision of medicine is coming from somebody who also, as you say, uh, imagined, uh, you know, biodynamic horticulture, imagined the. Uh, you know, the, the Waldorf schools, and, and imagine the astonishing Camp Hill centers where uh, staff live with uh, people with developmental disabilities for decades and contribute, virtually contribute their time. It's, it's, it's such an astonishing contribution. He was, as you probably know, he was a great student of Goethe mm-hmm. and was a leading Goethe scholar and then was part of the Theosophical Movement. And out of the Theosophical Movement, he founded the Anthroposophical Movement. And and, uh, he was a contemporary of Carl Jung. And they both knew about each other, but uh, there wasn't a lot of mutual respect. But they were living in the same cultural environment, which was recovering uh, through the 19th century Romantic Movement, the whole lineage of um, esoteric thought, uh, going back to Heraclitus really. Heraclitus and Plato and uh, you know the Neoplatonics and uh, Ficino and so on. So it's this astonishing reality of our time that Jung and his followers, like James Hillman, who I'm very involved with right now and reading Hillman, Um, and Steiner and his followers have such purchase in our culture today. It's as though Steiner and Jung, in a sense, are the conduits for this over 2,000-year-old tradition of deep, thoughtful, mystical, and esoteric exploration. And uh, anyway, I I, I just wanted to say that because um, as in so many things that you do, it seems to me you found your way into, of the many, many paths of integrative thought and experience that you might have chosen, um, it's interesting to me that you found your way into one of the traditions that I regard as the most beautiful and most powerful of of healing traditions.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to say a little bit more about it, because you're right about the, the roots and the history and the, the, the loftiness of it. I went and spent a month in the Lucas Clinic. And, um, you did? Yes. I didn't know oh, that. Oh, okay. Yes, in um, 1977, I was there from the middle of September till the middle of October, And I went there, my cancer was progressing, what am I going to do? The year before I had tried chemotherapy against all better judgment and watched the tumors grow and so quickly knew that I wasn't, I really not only did not want to do the chemo route, it was not going to change or affect um, my cancer in a positive way and it just made me very ill. So I stopped the chemo, I started the Iscador um, in 1996. And in 1997, with the tumors growing, I went to the Lucas Clinic for a month. And what I found there, at that time, I'd already had metastatic disease for over five years. And I was already, and before that, I'd been dealing with the Putz Jaeger hol- holistically. And I'm putting this in qu- sort of air quotes. Um, What I found living in Sonoma County, where I live, is trying to coordinate my own care. I was at the center not only being treated, but also coordinating. So my life might look like, get in the car, drive to the massage therapist, drive home. Get in the car, drive to the acupuncturist, drive home. Well, when I was an acupuncturist, he told me to do something, I'd go to see another alternative practitioner who told me to do something else. Then I'd go see the oncologist who'd give me completely different news. I was attempting to coordinate everything that was very, very fragmented. There was no real cohesion to it. Um, And then also with some hospitalizations in there, which, um, yeah, that's like a whole other story, but spending time in allopathic hospitals than to go from there to an anthroposophic hospital where all the therapists talked to each other about me and my case. They made decisions what to do with the the arrhythmia, with the movement, with the art, with the um, music, um, ways to support me. I did a lot of biography work when I was there. Uh, It was just extraordinary. I came away... It really helped me realize what real healing might be, what it might really look like, and it did not mean taking a whole lot of pills and driving from practitioner to practitioner who all disagreed with one another, and um, did not mean going to um, an aesthetically arid hospital. As you said, the hospital... Was exquisitely beautiful. We were right above. Um, our room was right above the physical treatment room, where the scent of hot beeswax that they treated with beeswax, and so the the scent of that came into our room every day. And there were flowers outside the window, and the gardens outside were just beautiful. So it was um, it was healing by beauty and healing by attention and intention and art and music and the things that, I don't know about other people, but my being thrills to this natural beauty, cultural beauty, beauty, delicious food, delicious conversation. It's like my whole being expands, I get so happy, and when I'm in a regular hospital I get more and more contracted and unhappy, it's so aesthetically unpleasant to be interrupted and poked and prodded and tubed and wired so and fractionated between disagreeing people so I I loved the Lucas Clinic I think it's beautiful you don't have to know the the history of the roots to enjoy the benefits mm-hmm. you could just be an ordinary person
0: it's close to the Gita which is the center of the whole anthroposophical movement worldwide mm-hmm. and uh, the most remarkable place so when was that a turning point for you the that experience
1: it was um what it took me to was wanting wanting to offer to be part of that degree of healing for other people and so what it took me to was um I became a volunteer hospital chaplain for four years. It took me into a very mainstream hospital, and as a volunteer, I would go in and talk to the patients. I wouldn't talk to them. That's a total thing. I'd go in and listen from my heart to the patients and their guests and um, visit hundreds of people who were in the hospital who weren't necessarily going to get the time to have someone meet them at a heart level. And that was my offering back.
0: When you began to talk about that, you, you, your eyes teared up a little bit.
1: Just it was just such a beautiful opportunity, yeah, yeah. just mm-hmm. to be able to be with people in that time.
0: Were you able to bring that sense of coherence that you found in the therapies at the Lucas Clinic back into your own healing practice uh, when you came home?
1: I feel so, Um, not that I don't have to get in the car and drive from person to person, but I don't, it's like I have a stronger core sense of self, so I don't get so pulled off by people disagreeing or having different um, world systems, world views. I have a sense of myself that extends from before birth to beyond death. So then death is no longer the enemy. You don't have to do any wild and crazy thing for an effort to stay alive because my own knowing of myself is an alive spirit. A certain immortality.
0: What is your sense of where you will travel after your physical death?
1: What I've heard and read...
0: No, your what own I've sense seen? of it, your own sense. In other words, when you say that you're not afraid of death, and that death is not the enemy, and that you have a sense of yourself as a life spirit, um, if death is not the enemy, if you're not afraid of it, what, what is the inner knowing that you have about your life spirit? that makes you able to say that?
1: Michael, it seems like there's two parts to this. One part is my sense of myself as spirit that's so strong, that's so mm, real to me that um, it kind of can't be disintegrated or dismembered or taken off course. But the other part is... As an infant, I had a near-death experience, and from that, for me, um, a tremendous sense of joy and happiness about what life will be then and there.
0: Can you describe that experience?
1: The experience or my sense of now of how it feels? Let's start with the
0: experience.
1: Yeah. So I had mentioned earlier that when I was a baby, I had this surgery. Um, I was in a lot of pain. My GI tract was blocked. Um, as, my, as my scientist friend says, that, that polyp was the size of a deck of cards and you were a baby. Um, and I had a near-death experience. And the way that I experienced it then, I was pre-verbal. And the way that I experienced it was leaving my body and moving toward what I saw as a tree of golden light and in about the shape of um, an oak tree, a very rounded form. And I was going up to it, and I was just blissfully happy I was just so excited like I get out of this body and what I got was "Mm, you get to go back and I felt there was like some resistance from me like I don't want to go back and my sense is since then there was part of it me that felt like it was a punishment to have to come back to life and part of me that felt like okay, I'm going to do everything possible in my lifetime to earn my death which is to follow life wherever, whatever life takes me whatever life brings Um, and that at some point the spiritual world will know when I'm done and bring me home, and um, and and I'll get to I'll get to come back.
0: I'm wondering if I've ever heard anybody talk about a pre-verbal near-death experience. It's remarkable to me that you are able to remember it. I don't question it. I just find it remarkable.
1: My sense of it then is I was really still pretty close to birth and it felt so much more real than the life that I had been born into and lived for eight, nine months up Mm -hmm. To the point that I had my surgery. Does this make sense? Yeah, it does. It's it's like the recognition was like, I know, I know this. Mm. Th- this I recognize. What do you mean? I, you know, I don't. Re- it's like I don't recognize life on Earth, mm. and that might be a difference.
0: Have you had other near-death experiences since then, or not?
1: No, I've had mm. close calls, but mm-hmm. not like.
0: But not when you uh-oh. left your body and so forth.
1: Oh I've left my body but not huh. not close to death.
0: So say more about your other experiences leaving your body.
1: Well that's more like a skill. That's like a skill something you put in your skill base. And
0: Is it something you can do when you choose?
1: Well, I could for a very long time, Michael. But um, when I was in my 20s, I decided that I wanted to learn to live in my body. So I feel like I really took up the task of incarnation more in my 20s, sort of like I lived that first period not so connected to my incarnation, more connected to my imagination, more connected to spirit or environment.
0: So what was the period when you moved in and out of your body? Uh,
1: Probably from when I was a baby until, I'd say probably my mid-20s.
0: And would you just go a little ways out of your body, or would you travel? What, what, what was I would the-
1: usually go a little ways. I could Sometimes I could travel, but I was, it would be more something would be happening with my body, pain, something that I didn't want to be present for. And so I could detach and go and watch. And so yeah i'm sorry, and there was some another part that I was answering a question in two parts. well, then,
0: the second part we started with your experience of uh, of uh, the the the, the near death experience in infancy, and then you said, uh, we were talking about your sense of uh, how you know the spirit uh, continues after death and and so we started with the early experience and then we were going to turn to the question of how you experience it now.
1: Let me just feel for a second. Yeah,
0: take your time.
1: Um, how, how, I'm going to f- reframe this a little bit. How it is that I have confidence that death is okay, that it will be okay for me. Part of it is based on the gifts I've experienced from people I love dying and people I don't know dying, and my experiences of being with them near the end and then also being um, with their bodies like at home funerals um, or in hospital rooms when I was a chaplain. And it's just it's such a profoundly sacred and special say thing. It's not a thing. It's not an experience, but it's a profoundly sacred beingness, change in beingness from incarnation to ex that I feel just having experienced that, it's like, it's like God. It's like how, how do you, you could hear about it and you can hear about it. You can read about it and you could read about it. You can think about it and think about it. But when you've experienced a connection like that, when you really know it in your, own self then for me that leads to confidence so it's other people's experiences but it's also a sense that I have for myself that That every day, the spiritual world is sending sustenance, and it's sending well-being, and it's sending love and care, and that I'm um. Not sad. I'm just crying because it's like something I don't. I don't know how I got, and I don't know how lucky I. I mean, I know how lucky I am to experience it.
0: Does that sustenance take the form of love?
1: Mm-hmm. And it takes the form of love from all of the environment, from the natural environment between people, um, within myself.
0: You know, I've had that experience myself recently, and it's a very new experience for me. I'm 69 years old, and you know, I, and if one thinks of the spiritual tradition, you know, Rachel Raman's lovely phrase that the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better, which I've always found a useful summary of one way of looking at life. And, um, and of course, that's a very ancient teaching. That's far from Rachel's original thought. But that sense that there's wisdom and there's love, right? And these are two poles of human experience. And... Um, and um, and I always, not that I was wise, because I know that I'm not, but I always came from the wisdom end of it. And I felt I had a good heart. But, and I have experienced love in my life. But somehow, you know, in the last six months or so, I just kind of got broken open to the deep experience of something like what you're describing. And, and again, it's broken open, you know. And one of the things I noticed about it, which was the most interesting to me, is the effect that it had on fear. Because it tremendously diminished fear. It just tremendously diminished fear. And the sense that I have of what you're describing of the confidence in the face of death is it's not that I know, and I think you probably know a great deal more about this than I do, it's because I think you've been broken a lot more than I have and because I think you've made use of the breaking more than I have, but, but I've been broken enough to have some sense of this. Uh, it's not that I know where the soul goes. I don't know that. But what I do know is that I do know that experience of a kind of all-encompassing, as you said, source of nourishment that takes the form of love. And what I know is that in that space, I feel as if I am experiencing the eternal. And I don't feel, I feel like, you know, I could die now because... I've tasted this in this lifetime. I've been given the gift of tasting this, and I think lots of people get this gift. It's not like some mm-hmm. erudite, you know, airy fairy, hyper spiritual, you know, enlightened experience. This is widely available to human beings. You know, lots of people have it. You know, lots of wise old ladies have been there and back a hundred times. You know, but. But I know for myself that the nature of the soul and the spirit remain a complete mystery to me. Just hints, right? But what I, you were saying you can read about it, you can think about it, it doesn't touch it. But the knowing of the experience of a transcendental form of love just changes everything. Mm-hmm. you know and and fear goes away and one has a sense that okay God I want to live a long time I'd like to be around I love serving you and serving life but um, if you need to take me thank you for having given me this experience
1: hmm. yeah I'm yes 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 and I think I'm even a little, I'm in a little different place, and maybe it's because I've lived with life-threatening illness basically mm-hmm. my whole life, mm-hmm. um, I really see, feel, perceive death as a homecoming. Mm-hmm. I Just as this sense of transcendental love flowing into us, mm-hmm. I'm... Experiencing it flowing through me and flowing back out. I'm, I'm feeling, for myself, increasing connectedness mm-hmm. um, on multiple levels. And I'm not talking about, I went down to the mall and shopped and got my new thing. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, I'm increasingly part of something bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. And when I shuck my body, I'll get to be there mm-hmm. full time. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. Mm.
0: So, one of your many adventures that I don't want to ignore is uh, that with this lifelong experience with, do you say Putz Jaegers? Is that how you say it?
1: Putz Jaegers, yeah.
0: Putz Jaegers syndrome, which, as you said, is this experience of cysts in the Digestive tract. Right?
1: GI tract, polyposis. G- yeah, mm-hmm.
0: g- yeah. And you became an expert on that and le- have led a-, a global network of people with Putz-Jager's syndrome. Is that right?
1: Yeah.
0: Say a little about that.
1: Well, that's been really fun. Mm. And when I was growing up, I'm the first person in my family to have this... Um, Disorder. It's just one one extra, I think, A or C and the whole thing went awry. So is that called a genetic polymorphism? Is that what that's it's called? Not a genetic polymorph it's a gene- it's a rare genetic syndrome. Okay. And so about half of us that have it are the first people in our families to have it. I never met anybody with it. I started hanging out in medical libraries so I could read case histories of people who had it. It's very rare. Um, and in 2000 I started an online support group for people that had it and um, it's an international group Um, I feel like several things happened for me with that Uh, an isolation that I had through childhood and um, until my 40s then turned around. I started to hear from people about their lives and then to begin to meet them. Um, I felt like rather than having the doctors and the researchers define us and our experience and describe it back to the medical literature, we began to describe it to one another and to formulate our thoughts and feelings and take them out. Um, I come from a line of political, social activists in my family, um, the kind of left-wing, fringy kind of way for the most part. Um, well, some right-wing activism, too. Um, but just basically, like, if you want to see something change, do something to make it change. So... I was able to...
0: Scoop Nisker used to say, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own, I have
1: gone out and made some of my own, yes. So I've written articles, I've been on the radio, I've spoken to medical um, gatherings about life with Putz Jaegers, and I've helped a lot of people survive and grow up. So there's a real feeling for me of... um, something that was so isolating and so disconnecting to a way of being connected. And How many not people
0: are in the group?
1: I think we're about 325 now, mm-hmm. and a, probably another couple hundred have passed through. Mm-hmm. And a good number of people died. Um, the mm-hmm. risk of cancer, the lifetime risk of cancer by the age of 64 is like 93%.
0: Including a higher risk of breast cancer.
1: Yeah, the, uh, yeah, definitely the breast cancer, right. but um, lung, pancreatic, right. GI tract, ovarian, mm-hmm. uterine, mm-hmm. testicular.
0: Do we know whether there's any environmental contributor to the puth syndrome? Has that been explored? I don't
1: the syndrome itself, but things like um, smoking are obviously going to make the lung cancer, and pancreatic cancer risk worse. a lot, lot right. worse. Um, Although,
0: you know, it's so complicated. One of the things, I have benign essential tremors, you know, and it's like Parkinson's, but, you know, it's not going to kill me. But one of the amazing things is, you know, what reduces the risk for Parkinson's disease is cigarette smoking and caffeine, right? And I just love that. I love it that the world is so constructed that... I love it when things break my theories about how the world should be. But isn't it wonderful that cigarette smoking and caffeine reduce the risk of? Uh, yes, it's like know. the Woody Allen
1: joke yeah, about right. the chocolate cures right. everything. Right, mm. right. <laughs> just just wait long enough. I do think um, I want to go to this because it's something that I have a lot of confusion about for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived a very healthy lifestyle. I didn't have insurance for a lot of my adult life, health insurance. Um, I lived a semi-impoverished life. I worked at a natural food store, um, ate well, never smoked, never drank, bicycled, hiked, did yoga, you know, just lived that very stereotypic lifestyle and then got cancer, breast cancer in both my breasts at 34 and At the time, I felt, I'd say, betrayed in that my cancer prevention lifestyle hadn't prevented cancer, but I have to wonder if it contributes to my longevity and the quality of my life. I I just have to wonder that without blaming anybody else for, you know, however they're coming into having cancer, whether it's years of smoking or what other risk factors they have that are elevated... Um, you know, lifestyle risk factors that they could change theoretically, but might be hard to change.
0: While we're talking about, you have a blog. Um, Give us the the coordinates for the blog for people who would like to know about it.
1: Yeah, um, it's a semi-private blog. You can go there and look, bookmark it, and if you want to register as a guest... um, you can do that, um, and if you want to leave comments or get notices. So it's www.mylifeline.org slash Stephanie Sugars, and my name will be on the little... So
0: it's okay for people to know this?
1: It's okay for people to know this. You can find it without looking too hard. I was um, interviewed on, um, for a KPFA radio show, and it's, it's out there. Okay.
0: And um, your and the Putz-Jäger, uh group. How do people find that?
1: They can just Google my name and Putesjägers. They could go. I have a Jaeger's news blog that I also okay. have, and they can find it through that.
0: Okay. So going back to this thought about what you have to offer at this point in your life. Um, I can say one thing. You're, you're, uh, you you're. came on the Cancer Help Program, is it two or three times? <laughs> three times. Three
1: 1992, times. 2009, and 2012, exactly six months ago today. Okay. Actually, you know what would be useful? Um,
0: let's talk a little bit about your experience of the Cancer Help Program. What... It's, it's, it's quite a mysterious experience to people who haven't been part of it. And you're, you're part of a group of alumni. There's, it's very interesting. The alum, you know, we do this six times a year. We've done about 168 week-long retreats over the last 26 years. So we only graduate 48 people a year, and many of them die. Uh, but many, many, many of them keep showing up for alumni days twice a year for years beyond their expected prognosis. And and there's a group of people including people with metastatic breast cancer who are 10, 15, 20 years out from diagnosis and with other illnesses as well. So within the Cancer Help Program there's this kind of group of elders I'm sure you've sort of sensed it, and and you're one of them. And they don't make a fuss about being elders. They're often quite quiet in the alumni days, but they kind of hold the space, are sort of there <coughs> for the community in a in a special way. And I wonder if you. Uh, if you would just describe what the Cancer Help Program has been for you, and wh- what, if any, observations you have about
1: it. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Mm. Um, I'll start by saying I was in the hospital just after my mastectomies in early 1991, and my Reach to Recovery volunteer had just come off a common-wheel retreat and brought me your book like from Kinko's with the little plastic thing stapled along the side, big eight and a half That's by right. 11 I,
0: format. I circulated it for years in that format before it was published,
1: yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. Choices in Healing came to me mm-hmm. there. And so I was already starting to think in the Commonweal sort of way. I um, didn't come to Commonweal right away. I actually went to Tumalpa Institute, where um, we did dance, we did movement Anna dance. Anna and, yeah, Anna Helper, but I was working with Jamie McHugh and actually Jennifer Altman was in my group. So oh, wonderful. From her I heard about Commonweal and kinda of kept it in the back of my mind. So when I first came in ninety two, um, I was really ready and open for my life to change in a big way. And I feel like it gave me that opportunity to kind of go down to bedrock, it's, I feel like the program, it meets you where you are. So if you want to come in and talk about alternative treatments or diet and lifestyle changes or your relationships with your family or other people or wrapping up your life or what is the meaning of life, it's, it's like you could, you'll be met. How to, how to create sacred space in your life. Um, whatever these, the changes are or whatever the, no, the levels of knowing are, you, you will find companions there, whether in staff or also in the participants. Um, I feel, for me... This this entire conversation is me saying things from my side, but that, that's what I can speak the truth about. Um, there's an implicit challenge in the program to take up your life to whatever extent that you can. And... Somehow, for a lot of the different aspects in my life, Commonweal that, that week in 1992, I want, this is like a bad term, but it is a true term. Um, it set the bar, so it it gave me some place. Maybe, it's, maybe setting the bar is the wrong thing. It set some framework or some... It laid the groundwork. And then I'll take this right back to Choices in Healing, where you said, um, or you wrote, it's like being um, airdropped into a war that you haven't been briefed as to the territory or what's happening or what how to survive, what to do to care for yourself. And the program helped us orient in multiple ways and toward how, not just survival, but how to survive well, how how to live in this new melu, or, you know, this foreign melu. Um, and then from that, I've been able to build a lot of skills. It's like it's, it's helped me describe the ground, um... And I, I, I want to say this one little thing, and that is, it having been 20 years since I was here, I've had the opportunity to explore the ground more than most people with cancer. It's like that's kind of become my world in a way. It's, it's almost... Okay, we'll take a couple of analogies. We'll take, well, people who get a cancer diagnosis and get sick... Their life's, like, blowing up, or they're just... They either think they're going to get in and out really quick, or when they realize that they're not, their lives are blowing up. <clears throat> they can't imagine how, how you could live... They want to survive, but without, like, a clear idea of what that would entail and what that territory would look like. And a similar analogy... Is around dying and death. It looks like a catastrophe or a terrible thing unless you've lived in it for a long time. Well, I've lived in the world of metastatic disease for a long time and undergone a lot of medical treatments. I think I know I've had over 40 surgical procedures in my life, I, a tremendous amount of treatment. So I have a certain competence and confidence in that world. I have similarly, I have a level of competence or confidence in death because of repeated exposure and because of my own life experience. And maybe these, when I used the analogy of Gretel earlier, maybe this is my white stone, maybe this is what I have to contribute just some confidence You,
0: you brought uh, a remarkable man named Francis Wellner to my attention and he actually came out uh, a week or so ago and did a, a workshop on, on grieving um, and he thinks the world of you um, Tell us a little about Francis Wellner and your experience with his grief work
1: yeah I'm happy to do that. Um, I'm going to talk about Cancer land and living in Cancer land because we talk about it at Alumni Day and I don't know that it gets out in the wider world so often so much. Um, an extreme. Occupational hazard of surviving for a long time with cancer is how much death you witness. It's, I've, I'm now 56, so I've been living with cancer for 22 years, and I feel like I lived the life of someone who's 40 years my senior for the amount of deaths that I've experienced of people in my world, people I love and grow close to, I don't work, so the, a lot of the people who have free time during the day are people who are sick, and I felt, even when I, um, especially when I came on retreat in 2009, um, it's just like, I felt like I'd just been get hit over and over and over again with my own medical catastrophes and also the death of loved ones, and so... This might be one of my white stones where uh, people think they want to survive, but part of the bargain is you're going to survive in cancer land and you're going to get hit and you're going to get knocked down over and over and over again. And
0: Both by your own experiences and by the deaths and experiences of others.
1: And even worse than that is there but for fortune go I. Mm-hmm. It's not just... Um, oh, well, that one died of a heart attack, it's like, oh, she had breast cancer, and it went to her lung, just like mine did, and it went to her brain, and then she was having seizures, and then she died. And then, how do you not hold that as a possibility for yourself? It's, it's a little closer, it's more a little more closely linked. So this surviving in cancer land, how much grief happens, and also even people that you know in your ordinary life, that when they're diagnosed with cancer, um, you become like a pilgrimage point for them, a place that they'll check in with.
0: You know, on that point, uh, Francis Wellner had this lovely line when we were having our conversation about grieving. And um, the the line was that uh, he studied with this African shaman, what is the guy's name? Maladome? Oh, I mean, no. Somay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's famous. I just don't know his work very well. But he, he talked about how in Africa that people who live with life-threatening illnesses close to death for a long time are considered living shrines they're considered living shrines because they occupy that space right on the edge. And I think that's what you're talking about. And it's true of you that you you have become, and, and it's true of a number of the other sort of seniors in the Cancer Help Program community, that there's a group of you, each in your own way, who become living shrines. You know? It's the most remarkable kind of state to... So what does it feel like to be a living
1: shrine? To be a living shrine? I'll finish with Francis and the grief. Anyway, I got to... I I was looking for something else. I found his work. I found a grief ritual about a year ago. And, um, yeah, lots has happened around that. Um, For me, it's been transformative because... I was just carrying so much grief. It was like, what do I do with this? How do I deal with it? How do I handle it? Um, the living shrine thing, it's hard because I I have competing impulses and one is to really just put my light under a a barrel or a basket like the biblical reference is just like not shine and then the other one is to realize how, how we're all stumbling around, and you know we're, we're we're all looking for that light, those lights, and or the living shrines, or the, the white stones. We're all looking for a way out of the forest, or through the forest, or through the, you know, the landscape of Cancer Land. And if we don't speak or share or write, then we just become more and more isolated and fragmented and I would rather be connected even if it means taking a risk and leaving my comfort zone yeah
0: one of the beautiful things about Francis's work and this wonderful book of his Entering the Healing, Healing Ground,
1: Ground. Mm-hmm.
0: Entering the Healing Ground I, I really recommend this book on grieving it's, it's really a contribution Um, But one of the beautiful things he says in that book is that most people think about grieving uh, just in one way, which is about grieving death or grieving illness, Mm -hmm. right? And he says there are actually five gateways to grief. And I'm not going to remember them all. uh, But I do. Do you remember them? Mm -hmm. Why don't you give us the five?
1: Okay, I'm pretty sure this is it. Everything you love, you will lose. So that's the one that we think of. Either everybody else is going to die or I'm going to die. Um, The parts of yourself that you've disowned.
0: That haven't had love. That that haven't haven't had love. love, That haven't experienced
1: love. That haven't experienced love. Um, Grief for the world not being welcomed into village or community, not being held in village or community in your life, not being seen by others, um, and the ancestral grief. For our part in slavery or whatever Mm -hmm. else it was. Yeah, or, I mean, think of Holocaust, you know, descendants of Holocaust survivors. Or not survivors, but, yeah. And I just, I think that's so true. Um,
0: and and one dimension of of one of those gates which you mentioned is uh, the grief that we did not get to live out the life that we hoped or expected to live, which is I think the one where you described it as not being welcomed into our community. That somehow mm-hmm. our gift,
1: our gift was never
0: received, was never fully received and that there's a deep grief about that you know Mm -hmm. and and he says there are doubtless other gates so for example he mentioned shame as a gate of its own uh and i thought that there's also a gate that i don't think he talked about so much which is not grief that we weren't received but grief that Grief for those parts of ourselves that we never put out there ourselves and
1: lived—that
0: mm-hmm. uh, we never that we were given this gift—and it isn't that nobody received it, although that's another grief. It's the grief that we never did it ourselves. I think that's mm-hmm. a very strong source.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost it's kind of like a shadow, but not quite. It's it's almost like it's like a shadow that's light. It's a light that we never let shine or a light that we never brought forward. Yeah, I was talking to Meg on the way here and I haven't worked for almost 17 years. I, I, I went out on Social Security thinking I'm about to die any minute. You know, statistically, I'm I'm there. I'm past there. I'm past it by a few years. and um, And how our culture is constructed that somehow our worth, our value, is tied up with our career, our income, our profession, our um, status and community, our education, um, all these different ways that we conditionalize what it is that we have to offer or contribute or to make ourselves part of a whole. And in that we leave ourselves out. Um, and I feel like, especially as economics, I think, will continue to collapse and environmental needs will continue to get higher. It's like, why in the world are are we continuing to use this obsolete way of disempowering ourselves um, by setting up a system of measurement? that when we get to the end of our lives, we may look back and say, I left my life unlived, or partially lived, all all the parts of me that I I didn't bring forward. Hmm.
0: You know, my beloved friend and colleague who you met, Susan Braun, who was the executive director of Commonweal for four years and really brought the end-of-life work to Commonweal as something that she contributed, and we continue it. Um, She... Um, is now on the board of Commonweal and has moved back east to do other work. Um, But uh, one of her observations is the incredible social cost, not just personal cost, but social cost of our culture of death. I mean, we all know that, I forget what it is, but it's like 80% of total lifetime medical expenditures or something like that are spent in the last... 6 months of life some mm-hmm. enormous percent and if we got that one thing right it would have a huge impact on our capacity to provide adequate medical care to the whole country without going broke you know mm-hmm. i mean there are other things we should get right too but but that one mm-hmm. is a really big one and and uh and so susan's thought was that we we need a national conversation about death, you know? We need to be able to talk about it. And that's why we started the end-of-life conversations at Commonwealth, of which a uh, conversation on grief was one. It's so amazing that, that our culture is um, so... Death-phobic? Deathphobic, deformed—so many different words we could use. But what if? I mean, it's not like we have to invent something new. I mean, <laughs> the, the great spiritual traditions yeah. have, for the most part, you know, discovered healthy relationships with death all over the world. You know, I mean, people. Mm-hmm lived in the presence of death for millennia before we banished death to the edge of the life experience.
1: The life expectancy a hundred years ago and what it is now, yeah. we just think we can. It's right. sort of like our use of oil. We just think we can do this. Right. And we, we just think we've invented a new way to live, that we right. can live indefinitely. We've pushed death to the margins. Right. But, yeah, I, I read a lot... I get a lot of bioethics news. I read a lot of doctors and people, um, sort of industry insiders, and these very questions about the end of life and the cost. And because I'm a patient advocate activist and I look at things through that viewpoint, I write patient view reports. So I take medical literature and I... Like, how does this look from the patient's side? And from the patient's side... We don't have a lot of confidence in death, and we don't have a lot of ways, sort of, to step out of. When, you, when we have cancer, it's like it's like like your analogy of dropping into a war zone. It's like you don't feel like you have any option but to take the weapon that's handed to you and do the thing with it that you're told to do, even if it means severing part of your body or losing part of your function or risking your life. You don't have the chance of saying, this other way of dying would be more in keeping with who I am, would be more honorable because there's such a flurry of activity and there's such a sort of a pre-programmed way to go the way to to do cancer is so sort of pre-programmed by the medical complex that people don't have uh, that luxury that I've had over 20 years of living as a companion with death and really getting okay with it and it's, it's really, I think, a cultural lack.
0: Were you on a cancer help program with Lenore Leffer?
1: Two, yes.
0: Two. So, you know, Lenore co-led the cancer help program with me for 25 years um, as the psychotherapist co-leader, and, and truly was one of the most gifted psychotherapists, uh, both individual and group, I've ever met. And you know that she is now um, living with pancreatic cancer. And uh, it's very recent. It was the, just the last month or so that she was diagnosed and it's inoperable. And, and she is living with this end of her life period with the same incredible grace and dignity and wisdom that she showed for 25 years co-leading the Cancer Health Program. I mean, you know, I know she just sent me a note uh, last night that she and her family and some of her, she's a very private person, but she and her family and some of her very closest friends have gathered for a solstice Hanukkah celebration of her life, a rejoicing, you know, a rejoicing. And how many years did she and I co-lead the Evening on Death and Dying in the Cancer Help Program? And She always talked about how difficult it was to get her family to talk about the fact that she might die. And the way she did it was that her family, I bet you remember this, that her family loves food. And so she decided to open the conversation by saying, you know, I know you don't want to talk about this, but let's talk about what food will serve at my memorial service, you know, and so they could all get into, mm-hmm. you know, that, and then the conversation moved from there. But the reason I bring that up, for several reasons, one is that Lenore is so on my heart right now, mm-hmm. you know. I just Mine talk do. about grief. I just have this deep grief for Lenore. Um, but in one way I have grief, and the other way, I celebrate because this is a woman who lived her life with, you know, incredible beauty. But the reason I did bring it up is that the conversation, a lot of people find it hard to open up the conversation about death and dying and hard to bring their families and friends into it because, as you and I both know, so many people respond if somebody wants to talk about it, oh, you're going to beat this, keep a positive attitude, you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And people have this sense that if they look at death, that it means they've given up the fight for life and that it means that they're going to die sooner and therefore they shouldn't think about it. And as you know, my philosophy is far better to look at it because the amount of psychic energy it takes not to look at it is overwhelming creates anxiety depression all kinds of things if you find a way to look at it and as you so profoundly have to be with it you actually have more energy for living and it could well be that part of what's contributed to your extraordinary experience is that you've been not afraid of death for a very very long time you know i don't mm-hmm. know if that that's relates, that's but,
1: absolutely true yeah and I'll also say, though, I feel like Lenore is well-prepared. Yes. She's had 26 years of observing other people's experience yeah. and wondering how she would be if she was in That's their right. shoes. shes It's like societally we're so ill-equipped to mm-hmm. deal with the unknown, to meet the unknown. And so societally... We're not schooled in living with uncertainty. We're not schooled with how to have our hopes dashed and deal with that. It's like life teaches us, but society doesn't kind of come around and get our backs and model for us how to do it. So I I feel like Lenore, other people in this program, you, of course, all the other staff... You've had this exceptional experience of being able to look at other people's experience and wonder, what would I do? How would I do it? So when you had your heart attack, you took it up in a very different way than you probably would have without the Cancer Health Program. That's true.
0: Absolutely true. In fact, as I was being airlifted to the hospital across the bay in this tiny little helicopter, I remember thinking so clearly um, that I wanted to live with every fiber in my whole being and that, if it was my time to die, I was okay with that. And I was so interested that that was my experience because I had always wondered how I would be in that moment. And then I got to the hospital. I told me I was having a good heart attack. Everything was going to be all fine. And so I was unafraid in that moment. But then when I got home and told, was told I was going to be fine, that's when the anxiety set in. That's when the fear set in. So what I discovered is that when I'm very close to death, or potentially, I'm not afraid. But there's a band of fear that is between when I'm feeling well and when I'm feeling very close, which is when, you know, some new symptom comes up where I'm thinking maybe I'm having another heart attack or something, and then the anxiety kicks in, and it's negotiating through that band of anxiety and fear that I find a challenge.
1: And I'll say there's, for me, there's a parallel uh, with with the very similar experience with the death when I'm close I'm fine Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine when I'm there's yeah maybe there's periods when like I just put it. I just paid for a workshop I want to go to in February and I'm thinking am I out of my mind Mm -hmm. but you know then I become a little more attached to being here a little more Mm -hmm. have this idea that in two, three months, I'm going to actually want to go to this workshop. But um, pain, and I think that's something that we don't talk about. Um, Some of my most transcendent moments have been filled with pain. There's something for me, and this might not be true for anybody else, but in the sense of I wish somebody had told me this a long time ago and they hadn't, is something has happened... Often for me with pain, where I go someplace that's so unbelievable and remarkable and extraordinary and blessed, just blessed that and having done this repeatedly, you know, close, far, close, far. And I don't know if the place of surrender exactly what it is, but something happens that it's okay. Is it I'm related okay.
0: to the fact that there were times in your childhood when something painful was happening that you left? Is it connected to that?
1: Oh, that, that's a great question. Yeah, but instead of fleeing it, it expands me. Hmm. So instead of, instead of doing like a linear jump from my body out of my body. It's like I do a a spherical expansion Mm. all around me. Mm. Wow. So we're coming to
0: the end of our conversation. And I first of all, I want to thank you so much, Stephanie, and, and say to you, You know this, that not only do I enormously admire you, but I also really love you. And um, so that's something I need to say. Um, What haven't we said? What would you like to say? Um, Where should we bring this conversation to
1: a close? I love you too, and I'm grateful to be part of um, the end-of-life series conversations. I feel like I have no clue what my contribution is, but um, just a willingness to, to be part of it, and, and a feeling of being honored to be part of it. Um, and also... Um, I really want to call in so many people I've known who've died and to just reiterate again, and I don't know how many, I think we need to say this like a thousand times to one another, that death is not a failure, that it's not a loss, I mean it's a loss, it's a loss to the survivors, but it's not losing one's battle against cancer and it's not, um, it's not that you did, it's not a punishment, it's not something you did wrong, it's, absolutely integral with life and um, that could help us reframe it
0: are there some people you want to call in by name who have gone before
1: Mm-mm. okay yeah, thanks yeah.
0: well i'm so grateful uh this This conversation feels very special to me. I'm, I'm grateful that we've had it, and um, and I want to express the hope that uh, we continue to meet either on this side or the other side or on both sides uh, in the mystery um, in the mystery of. Uh, Connectedness and love. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Michael.